The question is, how can we as a society take advantage of the technology that we have? Because if we're not taking advantage of it, computers and the internet are expensive. We, we spend a big piece of our electrical budget on these things. We spend an enormous fraction of our attention in these things. And if it's just pointless entertainment then you know we're going to we're going to slide backwards pretty quickly <laughs> one of the things that i'm hearing i take the information that you're saying and i input it into my human brain and i process it and i come out with this idea that to me sounds like when we can automate more work that leaves us room as humans to innovate and create things that might even further benefit humanity. Hello, and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. We're going to talk about that concept of going all in. Now, I know a lot of you out there have probably had some dreams or some things that have been super meaningful to you, but maybe you hesitated when it came to stepping all in and going after the thing that you really wanted. I'm here today with Noah Healy. He's a computational mathematician, and he has gone all in on something he has worked out and created, which is pretty fascinating. And I know a lot of us are feeling funky about the looming economic situation. Are we going to a recession? Are we not going into a recession? And I know a lot of you out there thought there has to be a better way. Well, Noah's found a better way. He's positive about the math and he's gone all in on it. And we're going to talk about that, talk a little bit about his story, how he came to this point. And I'm super excited. Noah, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing right now? Sure, Jenea. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. As you said, computational mathematician, basically, I read and think about how to do pretty much the kind of math that we teach kindergartners. So how do you add, multiply, divide? How do you do algebra? How do you do calculus? How do you actually t carry out those steps, break that down into things that we can hand to machines and then get machines to do them for us? So that that's a, a 
to me, a fascinating and beautiful aspect of the universe, basically. And so that's that's what I've been kicking over the shells on the beach. That was Newton's description of his, his approach. And the pearl that I found was a brand new market mechanism. So right now, negotiation can happen face-to-face between two parties, but we also have financial markets, which disembody this, but maintain that party-counterparty scenario where there's buyers and sellers, and what you do is you put forward an offer to either buy or sell, and the market finds somebody with a complementary sell or buy offer, pairs the two of you together. You never have to know who each other even are, and that deal just gets made. And what I've done is developed a more sophisticated market structure that breaks the transaction of the deal from the structure of the deal so that there can be a marketplace in improving deal structure, effectively changing the existing arbitrage opportunities from costs to the people that need to use the market to organize their industries to benefit the people and the industries so organized. All right. Now, I'm going to go back to the simple part of what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. The simple part about figuring out mathematics like kindergartners. (laughs) How do we do, how do we figure out the different things? Now, One of the things that you said that I think probably strikes a chord for a lot of people is that place, figuring out how to do the things and give them to the machines to do them. And I know a lot of people out there are feeling uncomfortable about AI and like, is AI coming for my job? Well, let's go back to your story before you went all in on creating this new economic system. And you actually automated yourself out of a job, didn't you? Absolutely. I think it's basically the only moral position for people in the professions and professional services is to automate the specific job that you're engaged in. And then you can move on to other jobs. And because when you do that, that improves productivity. Right now, we lock up a lot of information inside human heads because we don't really have any other place to put it. But that has a tremendous social cost because people are essentially stuck inside their own bodies until they die. So if there's, say, one expert doctor that can correctly diagnose certain kinds of rare occurrences. It's fantastic for the people that have those rare occurrences and manage to meet that doctor. But unless he can get that information outside of his head and into general society in a way that can be promulgated and spread around, that would be a thing that was essentially only beneficial to a small number of people in a limited geographic space for a short period of time. If we can get that information into an educational system so other doctors can be trained to do this, then that can broaden out in both space and time. But if we can figure out what the core of that is, build a machine that has that core in it, then 
in a way that's vastly less expensive than sending somebody to medical school for half a decade, we can spread that to the four corners of the earth. So there's a tremendous economic advantage to be gained from automating jobs at at that at the professional level. And so this is really the challenge. The, the issue isn't so much, can existing AI systems do your job? The answer is typically no. The question is, how can we as a society take advantage of the technology that we have? Because if we're not taking advantage of it, computers and the internet are expensive. We, we spend a big piece of our electrical budget on these things. We spend an enormous fraction of our attention in these things. And if it's just pointless entertainment, then, you know, we're going we're gonna to slide backwards pretty quickly. <laughs> One of the things that I'm hearing, you know, it's like I take the information that you're saying and I input it into my human brain and I process it and I come out with this idea that to me sounds like when we can automate more work, that leaves us room as humans to innovate and create things that might even further benefit humanity. Does that sound anything like what you were trying to convey? It's Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. And it's sort of worth thinking that during the age of industrialization, many, many, many professions were eliminated were severely curtailed. There actually used to be a blacksmith within a couple of blocks of my house, but he was not the village farrier slash nail maker that would have existed in villages in centuries past. He was a high skill artisan that was doing some, you know, very specific and obscure contract work for things that were still worth forging. And they were not the day-to-day objects of ordinary living. That, if we were still in the position that we needed metal objects to be hand-forged, cars and trains and and light bulbs and, and sort of the clothes on your back couldn't even exist because the machines that those things are or make those things or make the machines that make those things and or, and so on couldn't exist if we had to do all of the work to hand make them ourselves. The amount of electrical production and, and you know, gas distribution in the United States is, is, I think it's about 30 to 1 of how much physical labor or, or work is done, you know, paid work is done by human beings in the United States. So 97% of the work in, in the U.S. is being done by a machine somewhere. The wealth that we enjoy <laughs> in contrast to that what we can see in the lifestyles of diaries from four centuries ago is the result of that 97% offloading to these machines. And what computers offer is a vastly broader scope of of interaction with with our lives. There are much more sophisticated machines that we could have. So bread makers exist. 
That used to be a domestic task in many cases, but we haven't gone all in on full like food production through machines. There are people that are actually working on 3D printed food to be able to essentially create like, you know, gourmet plated experiences as the end product of a machine output. Would that eliminate the the chef? Some, maybe, but if the cost of high-end restaurants becoming a thing of the past because meals like that are a natural consequence of owning the equivalent of a refrigerator and an oven who cares basically <laughs> like we're we're, chefs we're now might care. <laughs> chefs might care in the short term but the rest of us are all eating better and and they can benefit from living in a world where that same thing has happened to doctors and lawyers and engineers and so on and one of the things that i know about humans for humans to be happy is they have to continue to grow and shift and change and evolve it's one of the core fundamental things that actually is a source of happiness, that stepping forward, that pushing those boundaries of what you've done before, it builds your self-esteem, it makes you feel good. I mean, we have the dopamine like hits system in our brain to keep us motivated towards accomplishment. So as we automate more out, there's still going to be a need for people to continue to step forward, create, evolve, and all of those things. And I don't know, I don't know enough about computers and math and AI and all of that to know, but I think I would guess that the thing that human brains have maybe over that is the ability to innovate. Like, can the computers innovate? I mean, I know they can pull all the information together and give you probabilities and all of those things, but can they actually innovate? So the thing that gets difficult is that we're essentially thinking of these things as as sort of another species of of near human. So you're anthropomorphizing a little bit too much. An example I like to give is would you describe a car as artificially athletic? <laughs> I love that. And the answer, of course, is no. Like, we understand that cars are superhuman, certainly. I mean, strictly speaking, if I was allowed to drive my car, I would win every single track event at the Olympics that that, that involves a flat surface. Um, Unless it was a really beat-up hoopty. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> yes. But yes, my car can cover both 100 meters and a, and the 26 and, and change miles of the marathon, and it can do all of those things faster than any person can do them. That's a capability, basically. The fact that we can mass-manufacture vehicles that can carry a ton of material hundreds of miles in a few hours in in, a, in an environment where essentially hundreds of millions of people can all gain access to that. No numbers of trips to the gym could ever allow any human being to do something like that. Right. And, and it is not a normal feature of our lifestyles that we exploit that power. I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm not driving my car with a ton in the trunk, you know, halfway 
halfway across the state. But the existence of that capability is part of what is making me wealthier. And so what computers, we currently know computers are good at, is meticulousness, recording information, perception, and, and reasoned chains of, of action. And so that, taking advantage of that, figuring out how to make those things useful is, is essentially the challenge. And so what happens is a lot of a lot of actual sort of human thought stuff is done the way that's convenient for us to do it. And we're good at what we're good at. Like you say, we have a certain degree of creativity. We've got a certain flexibility. Just like the, the village blacksmith would take advantage of that creativity and flexibility to be able to deal with a slightly different grade of iron ore when he's making nails or a dent that just appeared in the anvil or something like that. Whereas the machines that we currently use don't really cope with that stuff well at all. So we design very well-structured factories that have very high-quality inputs so the machines can produce incredibly sophisticated things without having to deal with that variation in noise. With computers being much, much better at sort of recording things, we can take advantage of that to build systems that do vastly more sort of note-taking than humans would ever be able to put up with. But because of the vastly greater note-taking and meticulousness of computers, we can create these sort of easier systems for computers to navigate that can then take tasks that are part of our lives and make them part of the machine's life, and we can work on other issues. And that's where the math... You're talking about sort of for happiness needing a goal, needing something to pursue. The math is quite literally infinite. So, so <laughs> no matter how much of this that we actually manage to accomplish, we are absolutely guaranteed to know that we will only be barely scratching the surface. There's a, there's a fun proof, for example, all numbers are small. And the reason all numbers are small is there's an infinite number of numbers. So no matter how big a number you think of, even some truly unimaginable giant numbers, you you're not even it's 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 not even close. There's you're nowhere, basically. That 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 enormous things that, that human brains can't even reasonably think about comprehending are still there's an infinite number of numbers greater than that and a finite number of numbers that are less than, you know, between that and zero. And so that's, that's sort of, that's the path that we now get to set foot on if we want to. Um, well, yeah, it's when I help people and help clients figure out what their purpose is, one of the purposes of a purpose <laughs> is so that you have an unsolvable problem. Like it's always going to be there. It's, it's infinite, essentially, like mine is the evolution of humanity. <laughs> like there's, well, I guess unless humanity just no longer exists, but essentially that's kind of like the numbers, maybe not exactly, but that idea that it's just going to continue and continue and continue for infinity. And now you automated yourself out of your job and you know again people are 
worried about that these days because they have these security internal issues that come up. And one of the things like you set up a system at your, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you set up a system at your job. And then when, when you were automated out, what was, what was your like pivot point around there? But let's start with automating yourself out of a job. So I worked for an industry that was associated with gambling and they were writing the computer codes that operated their their slot machines. And that's a heavily regulated industry. Essentially, everyone needs to be absolutely certain that what's actually on the floor is what's been approved to have been on the floor. And since these days we don't really build things with machines anymore, everything's got a computer brain in it the code that the computer's running is sort of what the machine's actually doing. And practically speaking, the only way to know what computer code is doing is to actually build it yourself from scratch on hardware whose configuration you know. And so again, that's a very meticulous process of having known starter hardware that's running a known set of commands on a known code base to produce a known final binary. And so in addition to being able to replicate that ourselves, which is something that's fairly common across everybody that's in the coding space, we needed multiple third parties to be able to replicate our own internal systems well enough that they'd be able to get bit-for-bit matches in the outcomes. So many people kind of homebrew up Uh, some kind of build system for themselves, because you frankly need one, uh, to operate with more than a handful of programmers. But those homebrewed build systems are somewhat ramshackle and certainly not third-party friendly push-button devices that sort of anybody would be able to use to just replicate their entire business system. So that's what that was the challenge we had to incorporate. We needed semi and technical third parties to be able to completely replicate our own internal business processes Mm -hmm. to their own satisfaction that that's what they had achieved. Right. So that was the task. We'd, when I got there, they had uh, a, a, a tiny amount of code and some checklists and it was a largely manual process so that it could be explained to the third parties along with the manual process so they could carry it out. And I was able to write the code that did all of the checklist steps and also work out the system to put that code inside the box with the system in a way that would be fully version codable so that when you got a package, the the tools to open the box would be inside the box and and when you opened the box, those tools would essentially pop out and build the thing for you. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it there were a couple of complicated things. It took a lot longer than it really ought to have because there wasn't much support from management, I'm afraid, for this. They were a bit more concerned with new product development. But after a few years, the system was in place it basically worked all by itself. And so somebody like me, who's capable of building that system, was no longer necessary. And so I was exploring the the options of making this, this job a career. The company was quite successful in spite of 
numerous sort of internal issues. And one of the internal issues turned out that the company's policy was that nobody had career prospects there. The opposite of humanity first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I waited around to a good closure point. I I effectively gave them three months notice. I had a little traveling I wanted to do in that fall. I I had some cousins who were stationed in Beijing that invited me to to see them. So I figured I'd uh, work through the summer and then take my leave, get things straightened up, and then go over to China for about a month and, and then start my adventure once I got back. Right. And, and so one of the things then you, I remember you told me that you got offered a job, but it was a lateral move. Like here you explored, like, can I grow with this company? And the answer was no. Right. Well, that was, yeah, that was in the lead up. I made my job, got my supervisor and his supervisor and his supervisor, and then the gap where that person's supervisor was supposed to be to get to the C-suite and then the owner of the company was sort of how the structure worked by this time. And so, you know, the sort of my, my kind of core group was well aware of the fact that there wasn't really anything for me to do anymore. And so I'd talk to them. And I got up to sort of below where the gap was. The The former CIO had been fired a couple of years prior, and there really hadn't been any particularly successful move to get him replaced. So the art department was a little freewheeling at that point. So the the most senior person who was sort of directly connected to me said that basically I would have to talk to the owner to find out what the deal is, because that was the only person in the company who was allowed to make any decisions. So I said, okay, well, you know, get me on his calendar for the next time he's in town. And I decided to go look for another job at the same time, because, you know, that, that you talk, you talk to the owner of the company who doesn't know you from Adam and say, hey, you know, I'm finished. Can I have, can I have something more to do? The answer might just be, well, you're finished. <laughs> you know, right. Goodbye. So let's let's figure out if there we can put a safety net in place. Sure, exactly. And so what happened was I started looking around for another job and I had about a month before I was going to meet this guy. And about two weeks into looking around for another job, I got a job offer for similar kind of work that I was doing for basically the same pay, slightly better benefits within walking distance of my house instead of having to get in my car every day. So basically a lateral move. And, uh, and so I was like, well, that's really cool. I'm going to, I'm going to turn this down, you know, thank you very much for the offer, but I'll, I'll wait out the next week and a half and see what happens at the actual meeting. And apparently I can find work relatively easily. So if, if, if he does show me the door, this job might be filled, but I might be able to find something else with these guys or some other job in, in a similar fashion. And that's a huge place to be. Like when you are as a human being looking to maybe follow a passion and go after something you want, when you trust that you can pretty easily get another job, even if it's just a lateral move, it gives you the freedom to take some chances. So you took a chance and continued with having the conversation. And 
by no by having that security of knowing that you could get another job if and when you wanted it to it set up a bigger a bigger foundation which of course you might not have even realized at the time but so you go you have this conversation and you find out that there's nowhere to go in the company and then what did you do well, he did say that the company had a new a new sort of thing coming down the pike. And so I kind of stuck around to see what the new thing was, but that turned out to sort of be nothing and and like I said, I was I I I'd at this point gotten the the invite to go out to China and was thinking about that and so sort of everything came together and I was like, well, I can I can afford to quit and sort of live on my savings for a few years at least and I can take a look at some of this this math that I've been interested in and see what I can find. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I went out to China and I got back. Actually, about a month later, I got a gig from that that company that I'd left. They had had a, a patenting sort of program for a little while. Turned out that we were more creative than they were expecting, so they sort of throttled it back and weren't offering as many prizes as 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 they they had initially sort of set up to offer. But I was I was the below the C-suite. I was the most prolific offerer of patents, and they needed my signature on a couple of them. They had initially wanted me to come in and sign the paperwork for nothing because the rewards were only for employees. I explained to them that that's not exactly how commerce works. <laughs> uh, and so ultimately they gave me the, the they paid me a, a few thousand dollars after I quit to come in and sign some papers saying that they actually could have the patents that they were working on in my name. And that's, you know, that's a few more months for me. Then I, I just, I just uh, kind of, sunk into my books and papers and and my imagination and and went on my exploration so it's what i'm hearing is there's this place like you know you can get a job if you need to you've got some savings and you've got this thing that you're passionate about you're super interested in diving into the math and you know again going back to that is your job gonna get automated out you automated your job out and it allowed you, because you had some other things in place, the savings and some other things, it allowed you to explore what was really connected to your heart, really, like was something that was super meaningful to you. And in doing so, you've been able to be innovative and discover this new economic system, yes? Yeah, yeah. Basically, if I had the day to day, I would not have had the time and energy to to think about these things. But by by decompressing and taking the time to to really focus, it's pretty astounding how much we don't know about the universe. <laughs> and that that's something that is a massive opportunity still, even even when we compare our current state of knowledge and technology to humans from one or five or 50 centuries ago and see that we have capacities today that would be basically unimaginable 
in in times past. Once again, all numbers are small. Like we're 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 a few steps forward on this path. There's a lot more out there, and so it is it is possible that if you if you get interested and you and you take a careful look, um, you're going to find some stuff. Uh, that, that there was a there's a principle in biology now that the best way to discover new species isn't to go anywhere at all. Like your backyard has an undiscovered species in it. It's probably a bacteria, but it might be a worm or even some kind of lizard. But there's but there's something essentially because that's just how varied and interesting and crazy the universe is. Yeah, I mean it. This is a little fact that most people don't know is your brain, your un, your unconscious full brain is processing 11 million bits of information per second. And you are, but you are only consciously aware of 60 to 120 of those bits. So any opportunity that you have to start to focus on something different than you've been focusing on a job that can be automated out gives you an opportunity to focus on something different, which potentially could be innovative and creative and completely change the world. And so what what really got you going as far as, you know, I know you've discovered this economic system what was it that led you were you specifically looking for a better way of economics or were you just exploring did you just stumble upon it tell me yeah so it's it's sort of yeah multiple dominoes type of a scenario so i'd worked for a number of companies and some of them had failed some of them had, were successful although they wanted to be more successful than they were uh, but my observation was that in many cases, companies failed not just because the the management makes a decision that causes it to fail. Like that's that always happens. It's like you know, mm-hmm. heart failure is the cause of all death because once your blood stops pumping, then then that that means it's over. But like in the cases that I'd seen, people in the organization, and even more frequently than that computer files inside the organization had the explicit knowledge that this was a bad decision. So in the first company I'd worked for, for example, they were getting ad revenue. It was it was basically a pioneer in social gaming. It was so much a pioneer they didn't even understand that social gaming is what they were doing. And so they had they'd put together a revenue plan of rather than having ad driven revenue, they were going to have this sort of prize partnership driven revenue model. And as it happened, their customer base didn't care at all. In fact, didn't care for it at all, to the extent that the their prospective revenue generator was the most off-putting part of their site. People that went there left and never returned. Whereas the primary cost center of their system was content and it turned out that their hardcore user base didn't care about their content at all because they were there to chat with their friends which means that it would have been perfectly possible for them to essentially 10x their runway draw in new customers and operate off of 
their their sort of ad revenue system by f- leaning in on what their customers actually cared about, which was the unique lobbying and social experience of their gaming, which back in the late 90s and early 2000s when I was there was a, a pretty serious technological you know hardship to get over and right. they they had they had the tech to do it but they didn't do that they decided to go all in on a system that their customers were soundly rejecting and it failed miserably as one might expect and that's not the only time i've seen that kind of thing it was sort of the most egregiously evident one because i was sitting at the crooks of their data system and watching this stuff go by uh but it was a pretty common pattern, and I've heard stories. That's a fairly common kind of story to, to hear as well. And so I was curious about how we could actually communicate consensus in a networked scenario. So standard kind of system is human beings will create consensus by getting everybody into a room and, you know, talking or having screaming matches or whatever and you know leadership puts their foot down and everybody gets on the same page and that's how we do it but we don't live in that world anymore we live in a world with the internet so the room can be on four continents but we also live in a world where enormous amounts of knowledge are locked up inside these silicon machines that we built and the people who have accessed some of those machine records are not good representatives for the totality of those machine records to the people in that room. And so that mechanism, that long-evolved social mechanism, needs an update. And so that's, that's what I was interested in. How, how could you do devise an information system inside a company so that your computers can tell you when they're like, hey, I've got this thing over here that says that that's a really bad idea. Here, take a look at it. See what you think. Well, it's it's about overriding the emotional attachment, right? Here's the data. They care about this. They don't care about this thing that you're so attached to. Do you want your company to work and be successful? Then maybe you ought to listen to what the data is actually telling you. Well, yeah, exactly. And again, that's, that's a perfectly natural human instinct. And if all information was being generated by people, I mean, having ordinary political instincts to give you a defense against con artists and liars is is a great thing like you should have that mm-hmm. we should have a lot more of that in fact we we see in the news that con artists and liars are sadly way more prevalent than we'd like but there's a category difference between dealing with people and dealing with machines and just like we would have certain social instincts for being around people or animals that are physically more powerful than us and we don't have those same kinds of instincts for being around machines that are physically more powerful than us um we need we need to sort of figure out where the breakpoints are so so like people that work around heavy machinery understand that you can't wear loose clothing because the machine will kill you and not because 
like some kind of bull that's been trained to charge at loose clothing. It hates mm-hmm. loose clothing. It's just that it's so unbelievably powerful that if you're slightly careless under those circumstances, it will kill you. That kind of machine you know, interaction is the sorts of things that we have with computers. The computer isn't interested in lying to you or manipulating you, but it has vastly more information in it than you can read in any reasonable amount of time. And so if you're under the impression that you can read and understand things and then come to decisions, then you're in the same boat as somebody who's under the impression that they can physically move objects around and build the stuff that they want. Well, that's that's true if you're talking about sort of small, simple, non-repeatable objects, but you can't you can't lift a car frame and weld it to a door, but the machines will do that every 30 seconds. Right. Where was the pivot point from going from solving that problem, right, the company's problem, to, oh, this is a bigger economic thing? So the first thing I I figured out was an approach to say, okay, let's say I'm a person that has access to some network of people and machines and sensors and whatnot, and I want that that network to give me information? How could I create an efficient incentive for information that would work across those different agent categories? And so I found this game theory approach, I call a negotiation game, that that provided that. And one of the elements of the negotiation game is it gives you the capacity to price transaction costs. Transaction costs being an economic concept that explains sort of the overhead of markets. So that's that's a cool thing. It was was sort of a theoretical toy, but my neighbor and friend, who at that time he was my neighbor, he's still my friend, I went over to basically brag to him. I was like, hey, look, this is this cool toy I just invented. I can price transaction costs. And he asked if you could use that to predict the stock market. And I said, no, of course you can't, because you can't pay enough for the information. They're basically already utilizing the information to make their own money. You'd have to outbid them. Definitionally, it's worth the amount that they're getting. Therefore, you're paying too much for it. Therefore, you're not beating the stock market if you're using this technique. So I'm walking back to my house, and uh, I have this little intuitive idea. Wait a minute. It's definitely worth that much because the market's paying for it. The market's paying for that information. Markets pay people for information to create consensuses. I wonder if there's a way to sort of add a self-reflection or a recursive layer to this approach and make a marketplace out of it. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I can kind of see that there might be. And since everybody knows, and, you know, I took Econ 101 and 201, I know too, markets are perfect. If I could use this approach to create a market structure that demonstrably performed as well as markets do, then that would be that would be something I could actually show off. Like, that would be a, an impressive achievement, basically. So it was like, well, that's a... That's a cool idea that might even have a reward at the end of it. And I was, you know, getting around the time when I needed to actually start thinking about doing something that was real. And so, <laughs> so that's, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Let me work on that problem and see if, in fact, I can make that happen. And what happened 
actually, was that once I'd gotten through the math and figured out a mechanism that would do these things and sit between the now four parties that, that were necessary, that system was vastly more efficient than markets are. Uh, to the extent that you know the computer I'm talking to you on, which is a not high-end laptop that I bought more than five years ago, uh, would be able to do all of the back-end processing for every commodity market on Earth if if you were using my technique instead of the one that we currently use. Whereas, so what it, would be the outcome of if this model were to be put into the global world? A serious drop in market overhead. So right now, according to U.S. government figures from almost a decade ago, the market overhead for commodity exchange is $800 billion a year. And we've had a lot of inflation since then, so that number is probably over a trillion dollars now. The size of the U.S. economy is 20 to $25 trillion. There's a lot of slop actually in these numbers, so it's, it's hard to actually know. And the, the nominal growth rate of the U.S. economy, whether there's recession or not, is usually potted out at around 2%. It's probably lower than that, which means that basically around half the size of the overhead of the marketplace is the growth rate of the economy. And this system could easily cut that overhead in half, which would go straight to the growth of the economy, essentially, as the people that actually make food and clothing and shelter or the raw materials that we use to make those things and energy would see their bottom lines expand. And so their profit margins would go parabolic, effectively. And that's it. Like We could go from 2% annual growth to 4% annual growth. And how would that affect the average person? It basically doubles wealth across almost the entire economy. Okay. And does that mean, well, because, right, we think about like, oh, well, if I just have more money, is that going to create a better quality of life? And of course, logically, that makes sense. But then you're also saying that the general overhead would go down as well so that you would actually legitimately have more wealth. Is that, is that accurate? Right. So the the issue is not so much the creation of extra money, it's the creation of extra product. So we make the amount of water, food, energy, steel, wood, and so on that we make because businesses that are capable of some degree of profitable operation can make those things. And so those are those businesses are operating with fairly low margins. And so if their overhead costs reduce, their margins go up enormously. If you're operating a business at a 10% margin and your revenue goes up by 3%, then your profits go up by 30%. Yeah. If you're operating at a 20% margin and it goes up 3%, your, your revenues go up by 15%. 20% is crazy high in the commodity space. 10% is getting down towards the bottom of where companies will basically fold rather than continue. So a three-point shift is between a 15 and 
profit increase. So that's that's a big big deal, even at the at the low end. And if it's that much more profitable to farm and mine and own factories and so on, people are going to do a lot more of that stuff, producing much better products that can ultimately be bought and sold and used by the rest of us. And so it's it's focusing on the actual goods and services that are producing the wealth, which is where this is coming from versus most financial schemes, which are largely just trying to figure out how to get more of the cash to stick to you. Right. So now, what? Now I know the answer to this, but why is it that you've de- you've chosen to go all in on this, and you're working really hard to get the information out there, make it stick, help people like adopt it, um, and test it, and all of the things? So why is it that you are willing to go all in on this? Well. There's, there's a few different sides of this. The first one is that that economic opportunity is, is quite simply enormous to the degree that there aren't any other economic opportunities that, that can match it. And so as the best thing to be working on in the world, there's nothing else for me to work on. However, also, as, as I've sort of explored the existing space and learned the jargon and, and found out more about the actual practical day-to-day of the existing markets, they're disintegrating in real time. It turns out that the system that the market uses to self-regulate isn't capable of dealing with, again, computers and their ability to record a bunch of stuff really quickly and move information at speeds greater than we can read and so on. And so what we're seeing is the markets have actually destabilizing and and they're destabilizing just because of the technology we have like the only way to get markets that we have to start working again would be to adopt like 1940s technology and never improve it ever and that's just not gonna happen (laughs) i'm in a scenario where on the one hand, I have this system that's offering an enormous improvement in a fundamentally vital service that I myself am dependent on. And on the other hand, that enormously vital service is literally dying and needs to be replaced by something. And and I have the only currently public alternative proposal. So... It's 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 sort of a push pull type of a, a scenario. Like yeah. this this is offering something that's better than what's theoretically going on, and also what's actually going on is something that we just need to pull away from as quickly as possible. It, it reminds me a little bit of for those of you listening in the world that are in and or around New York, some of the subway tunnels were for the L train were damaged during Hurricane Sandy. And it was on the docket for them to fix it forever and ever and ever. And it's a, it was a battle between the mayor and the governor back and forth, back and forth, always with them. And, um, and so up until the, like very, up until like the last minute that, which is such a main subway that goes from Brooklyn to Manhattan. So many people live off of it. 
and it was going to be down for, I can't remember the amount of time. I want to say two or three years. I could be exaggerating. And they were going to use the same methods that they've been repairing the subway tunnels for a hundred years. <laughs> and then at the very last minute, the governor came in and said, no, you're going to use this other method. It's a newer method, but it'll be more efficient. And they did it. And I think the subways were bad. It was up. They didn't have to close it down 100%, number one. And I think it's the first ever time I've seen a governmental project end early. So I think it only took like six, seven months before the subways were running normally again. And I see that in that, like, let's just do this thing that we've always done because we're afraid to innovate because what if it doesn't work because we're afraid to innovate. And so I hear that kind of a similar point, right? Where it's like the thing is crumbling, but let's try and keep doing what we've been doing because obviously that's still working. So you have this method that hopefully, so you're trying to get more and more people to know about it, get interested in it. And how do people do that? Reach out to me or you can look online. There's resources to learn about the white paper and so on. But yeah, I see you've got the, the banner up there. I've got a website at CoreDisc. You can find me on LinkedIn, just under my name, and email Yahoo. There's video explanation. Uh, you can also listen to this or many other podcasts that I've been on over the over the last year and a half. So yeah, look look in, reach out, and let's let's build some markets. Awesome. And so for those of you listening, that website is C O O R D I S com, And for those of you that are looking for a career that you love enough to go all in on, so you can stop doing the rat race that might be making you miserable and use your talents for something better. You can, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about what you need to create a perfect for you career. You can do that at elevatebookacall.com. Go ahead and stop and type it into your browser right now so you don't forget. That's elevatebookacall.com. And so one last question, Noah, if you look back at this place of you being a younger man, would you have ever thought that you would be working on something that is this important for the world? Not really, no. Um, I, I wouldn't have really been convinced that things this important could even have existed as a younger man. Uh, I, I had a, apparently a fairly idyllic childhood. School was easy and interesting. I got to spend a lot of time in nature and I got to read a lot, which are sort of those last two were the things that I like doing with my life. So uh, that was that was fantastic. And the the process for me growing up was sort of figuring out what to do in the world, which is a bit confusing because we we really have gone all in on everyone can just figure everything out for themselves and therefore nobody has to be given any hints about anything and <laughs> and so it's it's a little weird out there and 
that's basically just been uh, I, I try to find things that make sense. I try to make sense out of them. And then once I've done that, I try to find whatever else is confusing and try to make sense out of that. In many cases, it's just like nonsensical and I bounce off of it. But for everything I can actually get my teeth sunk into, it's just a, a that's just the journey is to just take steps down the road to build everything out so that it all makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think we all have something really important to offer the world. It's always just about taking those steps to figure out what it is that you can sink your teeth into that lights you up. And I think that's the place where we find that thing that we have that's really important to offer to the world. Noah, I want to thank you for sharing your story, your journey, what you've been working on with us. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me once again. This was this was great. Awesome. And remember, everybody, when we feel good about who we are and what we do, we elevate and evolve humanity. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.